our job is health literacy. However, looking at that ABS data, you realise that what we would describe as simple literacy just isn't a strength for a lot of our population. So for us, we realised then that we need to tailor our conversations with people to help improve their health literacy, but not assuming that they have great literacy to start off with. And of course, you can't be terribly health literate if you're not literate in the first sense. So for us, that health literacy really underpins so much of what we do with our communities. G'day, I'm Curtis Renner, pharmacist and partner at Emerton Pharmacy on Durrag Country in Western Sydney. And you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For our regular listeners, you will recall we recently spoke with John Briggs about how community pharmacists can be leaders and connect with their local Indigenous communities and play a vital role supporting Indigenous communities. We found it such an insightful conversation that we wanted to explore and share examples of pharmacies doing great work in this area. Curtis Runo is a pharmacist and proprietor of Edmonton MCAL Pharmacy. After university, Curtis completed a master's in management before becoming a partner in Edmonton Pharmacy in 2000, where he still works regularly. Curtis joined the PDL Local Advisory Committee for New South Wales in 2008 and is currently the PDL representative on the Pharmacist Support Service and has a keen interest in mental health and self-care for pharmacists. If that isn't enough, Curtis has also tutored medical students in personal and professional development. Curtis has great experience implementing the profiling of the Edmonton community to ensure the pharmacy is supporting their needs. And as I said, this is an area we visited a few episodes ago with John Briggs, and we wanted to explore a little further with some great examples in pharmacy. Here's Curtis. Thanks for joining us today, Curtis. We recently had the pleasure of interviewing Johnny Briggs, who came on the podcast and spoke about community profiling and the useful way that it can develop an understanding of the people in a, a geographical area or a specific community of interest. What prompted you to look at the community of Emerton, where your pharmacy is based, which is really only about 46 kilometres west of the Sydney CBD? In a recent article that was talking about our pharmacy, uh, Margaret, my wife, who's also a partner in the business, said, we want to be a best practice pharmacy regardless of our patients' demographics. No matter where we were, we think our practice would be the same. We would meet people where they are and we'd take time to give them the best we can. They deserve no less. So for us, it wasn't really about choosing to follow a particular path. It, It began much more organically than that. We'd had a good relationship with our local Aboriginal medical service when Margaret started working there about 12 years ago as staff pharmacist for a few hours a week. And doing that, we realised that we're all the same. There's a man Margaret met whose dad served in World War II, just like her dad. But because he was Aboriginal, his wage during his service was a third of Margaret's dad's wage. And when he came back home, he was told to leave a pub because he was black. 
Now, thankfully, all of his his uh, mates that he'd served with all walked out with him. But I don't think we can underestimate just how traumatic that can be. And you try to put yourself in that mindset, how would I deal with that? And you realise that we really are all the same and we all want the same things. We want to be able to be safe at home. We want to be able to be safe and happy when we're out. We want good friends. We want to be able to come home to a place that is comfortable and makes us happy. And that doesn't matter who we are or where we are. That seems to be a fairly universal thing. So for us, it wasn't so much um, trying to develop a path and follow that path. It was really about trying to meet our community where they are. And for us, it became a series of putting our hands up for various things and then seeing where that leads. And through that, we've had to find out a little bit more about our community as well. We've been here 22 years, so we've had time to dig into the ABS census stats and figure out some of the, the different parts of that. But it's really for us, it was about meeting each person where they are. Well, speaking about meeting people where they are, there may be a little bit of a perception out there that community profiling might only be undertaken in rural or remote community settings. But really, it's an exercise which can be done across pretty much all metro, rural and and remote settings. It is probably, for want of a better phrase, setting agnostic, so to speak. And you have been able to demonstrate that with your pharmacy. Can you share that with us? For sure. The Blacktown LGA, who doesn't understand what an LGA is nowadays, whereas two years ago, I think we all had no idea. But anyway, the Blacktown LGA has over 160 different nationalities, not including, of course, the different countries that our Indigenous population comes from. And as I said before, the ABS census data is a good source of this information in a general sense. But as John Briggs said, in the earlier podcast, there's no substitute for going out and just meeting people. Relationship before partnership is one of Johnny Briggs' catchphrases, and it's what we've done. We've really just tried to get out and meet people. Yes, definitely having a look at the ABS census data and comparing that with our own uh, demographics where we grew up, where we were as kids, all of that sort of thing has made it easier to connect with our local populations. But it, it really was a lot more organic, not as, as intentional as that. And really a lot of the trying to understand the demographics of our community has come through as a part of the process rather than at the start of the process and then saying, right, well, the biggest population group is this. It's it's not really been that. It's really just been, as I said, trying to meet people where they are and enjoying being there with them and then trying to learn a little bit more about the, the area and the population. So you undertake that work, you learn 
a lot of demographic data. As you said, I think it was 165 nationalities as well as the Indigenous nations in the area, the Blacktown LGA. You learn a lot of demographic data. You're trying to meet people where they are. How did what you learn actually get translated into the pharmacy business and change how you connect and approach with those groups? It's funny, over the last probably year and a half, two years, an idea has really crystallised in my mind that our job is health literacy. However, looking at that ABS data, you realise that what we would describe as simple literacy just isn't a strength for a lot of our population. So for us, we... um, we realised then that we need to tailor our conversations with people to help improve their health literacy, but not assuming that they have great literacy to start off with. And of course, you can't be terribly health literate if you're not literate in the first sense. So for us, that, um, that health literacy really underpins so much of what we do with our communities and it really helps us to focus what we do and I suppose a good example of that would be that at a local alcohol and other drugs service that we uh, volunteer at quite regularly um, which I'll refer to as AOD and I'll apologize for the acronyms up front but um, at the local AOD service that we go to, we speak at their men's group regularly. And Margaret actually took our intern up there last Friday. And you would think that a men's group would prefer to speak to a man. There aren't an awful lot of men working in health, particularly not in that health promotion space. So I do tend to take the lead on that. But Margaret had an absolute ball with that group. I told her that she'd need to prepare to speak for about 15 minutes and then open up for questions. She didn't realise that the questions would last for another hour and a quarter after that. And the feedback that she got right there in the room from the men who turned up and who were asking those questions was just made her feel so much better about actually turning up. And I think it underpins that idea that health literacy is really what we should be focusing on. And if people understand why they're doing what they're doing or why we're asking them to do something, then I think they're more likely to do it and to follow it and hopefully then be healthier, happier, live longer and happier lives. And I think you make a good point about health literacy because I think professionals and not just health professionals, sometimes we forget that some of the acronyms and the phrasing and and the way that we talk to each other, it's part of our world. We do it day in, day out. We take it for granted. And sometimes I think we forget that when we're dealing with patients, customers, clients, that it isn't their world and that sometimes they're not processing the information the same way we do because they don't live and breathe it every day. So I think you make an important point there, Curtis. Now, you are also involved in a number of other initiatives and programs, for example, uh, Too Deadly for Diabetes. Can you tell us about that program? Yeah, thank you. The Too Deadly for Diabetes program is an amazing program. And again, we started that 
on a volunteer basis when we found out that this program was coming to Marin Wajali. So it's a program aimed at helping Indigenous people to improve their diabetes and hopefully in some ways reverse their diabetes depending on where they are on the path with their diabetes. It was developed and is owned by an Aboriginal exercise physiologist called Ray Kelly and the basic tenets of the program are great diet and regular exercise and limiting in their diet, it's limiting things like bread, rice and pasta. So trying to limit their carbs and salt and sugar. And then it gives them a good um, diet program to follow. We prepare some food, which we prepare on a weekly basis, take them along some examples of what good food looks like. And I'm usually up on a Tuesday night cooking um, tonight. We're cooking a chicken curry that we'll take along uh, to the program and just give people a really good example of what a good meal looks like. And through that, what we're seeing is that people are losing weight. They're finding themselves um, feeling better. They're encouraging each other, which is just such a wonderful part of the, the program is to see these people reaching out to each other and celebrating each other's success. And the program, there's an app that Ray runs, which has messaging that comes through uh, every day for the first 10 weeks. And they have messages, things like, um, if you had a friend and your friend had was talking to their partner about joining this program and their partner said, I don't know why you're doing this. You're fat. You've always been fat. You've tried stuff before and failed. It's just the way it's always going to be. I don't know why you're doing it. You've failed at everything in the past. You're going to fail at this too. Ray says, would you stop them? Maybe, maybe not. Would you pull that person aside afterwards and say, forget what, that's, what they said. I believe in you. You can do this. I can tell that you're motivated and you've got this and I'm here. If you're ever feeling like you don't have the motivation for it, come and talk to me. We'd do that for our friends. But what if it's ourselves that are actually saying, you've always been fat, you've tried things before and you've failed. So we need to be good friends to ourselves. And his program talks about that talks about being a good friend to yourself. He uses another example. If you get a flat tire, do you get out and stab the other three tires? And everybody laughs when we say that, because of course we don't do that. That'd be crazy. Yet, if we're trying to eat well, and we open a packet of Tim Tams and we eat two Tim Tams, what do we do? Do we go, Oh, I've eaten two Tim Tams, I need to get out for an extra walk and burn those off today. Or do we go, well, I've opened the pack, let's eat the other seven. One of them is a bit like fixing the tyre and one of them is like stabbing the other three tyres. And one of those is a healthy long-term solution, which acknowledges that we're going to have times when we don't do what's best for us. And we have to then pick up and move forward and move on from there. And the other one is an unhealthy spiraling. 
And he addresses all of this in the program. And it's why we've volunteered on this program for years before I actually became the coordinator. And it's why I love the program so much. And it's just such an enjoyable part of what we do. I love the Tim Tam analogy because it reminds me of one of my favorite sayings, and that is that you can't out-train a bad diet. Curtis, people don't often like to be told that what they're doing is wrong, particularly if, for want of a better phrase, they're at fault for the health problem, if they've been making not so great choices. But we do acknowledge that sometimes people don't have the right uh, health literacy to be able to make the right choices. Can you talk us through how does that play out? Because I'm guessing there'd be a little bit of resistance. Do I really need to cut out carbs? How much change do I really need to make? Life's not that bad, but we are trying to take them on a journey. Can you just share with us how the group dynamics change in terms of how they engage with the messaging? One of the things that we talk about is the fact that you don't have to be perfect. And we understand that this is a process of change. And I've had people who've said to me, Curtis, I can't do this. I can't prepare the food. I'm not a cook. And I look them straight in the eye and I say, I'm not a cook either, but this is simple stuff. And I put this together. And when they look at me and say, didn't Margaret do this? No, actually this one was done by me. And I'll tell you when Margaret was involved in it. And Margaret does get involved in some of the meal preparation as well. But we talk about that. We talk about the fact that for me, my issue is cholesterol. Yet when I look at my watch, it's always chocolate o'clock. And so I love my chocolate. I could eat chocolate all day, every day. And I do eat it regularly, but I need to uh, limit that in order to keep myself as healthy as I can possibly be. And that's not easy. I don't enjoy saying, you know what, I've had enough chocolate for today or for this week or for whatever, but it's something that I have to say to myself. The other thing that works really well is we meet as a group out in a courtyard out at the back of Marin Wajali and the group actually talks and people talk and they bring up their own vulnerabilities and they say, I went through exactly the same thing. And I realized that I wasn't getting the results because I wasn't doing the program 100%. And when I did the program 100%, all of a sudden I was getting the results. And so that's where that having that group as a backup and the support of each other works so well. And it's, again, it's another part of that program that we love so much. It's not about me as a, you know, relatively skinny, middle-aged white man in a pressed white uniform telling them how to eat well. Uh, They don't think that I've got that experience, the lived experience to actually be able to understand what they're talking about. But they talk to each other. They can look at each other and say, I get it. I understand what it means when you've got to go and see family, when you've got sorry business. And one of the ways that we deal with sorry business is with food. Just like in the rest of the community, we deal with our emotional ups and downs with a bit of food, cup of coffee, glass of wine, whatever we do. And the program addresses that. It says we do that. But if we're going to go outside the program, then we need to work a little bit harder in our Um, exercise 
and then we need to get on the back on the program as quickly as we can. Great messaging, important work, lots of great resources and support in place. How do you see it all flowing through and ultimately having the impact it needs to have on patients? If you'd asked me before we started with Too Deadly for Diabetes program, I would have said that diabetes is a path. And at the start of the path is pre-diabetes. And at the end of the path is all of the complications of diabetes that we're all familiar with eyesight, losing fingers and toes, all of those nasty health complications. And how quickly you walk along the path is related to how well you control your sugars, but you can't walk backwards along the path. I was wrong. You can walk backwards along the path. And Ray has actually shown us how we can have people with HbA1c, uh, glycosylated haemoglobin readings, which show people who are, have diabetes when they start with the program and 10 weeks later, they have HbA1c readings, which are consistent with not having diabetes at all. They're reducing and in some cases, stopping their medication. They're going from pre-diabetes to having no signs whatsoever of diabetes. And Ray has even been able to get Diabetes Australia to add the word reversible into their description of diabetes on their website simply through their work. So that's part of it. But it's not just that. It's them actually walking taller, having faith in themselves and sharing that faith with each other. And also realising that a pharmacist is a great resource to have, that we can help them, that we can connect with them and we can understand where they're coming from that we understand that our story, just as I told you about Margaret's dad, our story is the same as their story, but it's not the same. There are disadvantages that are put in their way and those disadvantages are still there. And Australia is a racist country. That's a really difficult thing to say and it's a really difficult thing for some people to absorb but it's a challenge that Ray Kelly has actually put out to me to put in when I describe our country. And the truth is, if you don't read English, we're not very good at actually bringing you along with us. And I've got a lot of people here whose first language is English, but they don't read well. And if you can reach the age of 60 or 70, not being able to read well, then you are not an unintelligent person. You're an intelligent person who's developed some pretty intelligent coping mechanisms. And so thinking that people who can't read or who can't read English, even though they might be able to speak three languages, thinking of people who can't read English as unintelligent is crazy. And so they, we try very much with our work, with our health literacy, to try to understand where people are and try to understand whether they can read English. And we might hand them a pamphlet. And if their eyes come straight back up to our eyes and they don't even glance over the pamphlet, we might not know whether they can read English or not, but there's a bit of a hint there. And there might be a point later on in the conversation where we can say to them, how well do you read? And that gives them the opportunity to say, I don't read very well, or I don't, can't read at all. And 
if you've made it a safe space for them to explain that to you, then they might be able to disclose that to you. And that completely changes our conversations that we have with them. We might still hand them the brochure and say, if you've got somebody at home that can read this, you've got that as a backup for you. But let me explain exactly what that brochure says to you. And that comes back to our understanding is that health literacy and the primary way that we improve that is by asking questions of each other. Curtis, I love hearing about the amazing programs like Too Deadly for Diabetes, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Are there any other programs that you on the team are involved in that are community focused? Yeah, definitely. So we've been involved in World Known Tobacco Day, where we were asked to come along as pharmacists and talk to people and, if appropriate, start them on their quit journey. And we did that at the Aboriginal Medical Service. We did it at Marin Wajali. Um, last year, with just 24 hours notice, we managed to get some people into a um, called group, culturally and linguistically diverse group, out talking about um, quitting smoking on World Known Tobacco Day. And we were involved in that program in about 25 new quit attempts in three hours. In the the other programs, we've been involved in anything from 20 to, to 35 quit attempts on one day. People who are ready to start um, with their quit attempt and are equipped with all of the right stuff. And through that, we've had people as young as 11 actually come along and need to quit smoking. And when you can't buy cigarettes at age 11, it just underlines how big this problem is and how we need to be able to try to put aside our judgment and try to meet people where they are. I, uh, when I first became involved with Maram Wajali, they had a program called Health Outreach Day and they asked whether they could hand out a pamphlet through the pharmacy and had little circles and in those circles it had dentist, podiatrist, um, uh, diabetes educator and they had probably 12 or 13 different groups of people that their patients could come along and meet on that day. I scribbled another circle and wrote pharmacist and emailed it back and said, can I come along? You're missing one. And so we, again, just volunteered on that. And we've had people come along on that day and they'll say, oh, I don't need to talk to a pharmacist. I don't take any medication. That's great. No problem at all. I'm happy with that. But since you're talking to me, tell me how your sleep's going. How are you sleeping? And I've never met one person yet who tells me they're getting as much sleep as they'd love to have. And it opens up a great conversation about caffeine use, about smoking, just about sleep hygiene. And it gets them thinking that a pharmacist can help them with a lot more than just supplying medication. We talk about Webster packs. We talk about um, monitoring their blood sugars, but there are other people that do that as well. But we we really give them that holistic look at their health. And as I said, that that question about how you're sleeping, as I said, I've never had a conversation stop 
with great thanks and have the person walk away. The other thing that I uh, kind of pushed my way into was International Overdose Awareness Day. And in Overdose Awareness Day, they were having a program. And again, they just started up the naloxone, take home naloxone program. People, it's starting on the 1st of July, 2022. Please register for the take home naloxone program. We can save lives. But enough of the ad. I put my hand up and the man who was running that is a man who we'd known from his earlier days when he'd done all sorts of horrible things for his body and wasn't necessarily somebody that I'd trust with or really anything. But I, I rang Shannon and said, I'd like to be involved in this. I had a nurse who was going to present on that day ring me and say, Curtis, what can a pharmacist bring to Overdose Awareness Day? And I said, well, Kerry ann thanks for ringing. Did you know that Targin has naloxone in it? She said, yes, I know that. I said, did you know that the naloxone in Targin is just to stop people from getting constipated? It actually doesn't stop them having an overdose. Even though we use naloxone for overdose, it doesn't stop them having an overdose. No, I didn't realise that, she said. And then I explained that naloxone, when we give it, only lasts an hour and a half. The oxycodone in Targin lasts 12 hours. So even if it did work, it'd only work for an hour and a half and they'd drop from the overdose. Again, a couple of hours later. So everybody needs to have that and we can supply it free in a place that people are familiar with. And through doing that, I then had to do a bit of research and a shout out to Jacinta Johnson, who did a uh, an article. And in that article, I used that for my background reading and some other background reading. Over 80% of overdoses are unintentional. Over 70% of overdoses are with prescription medication. And the majority of those are the people that was actually prescribed for. So the idea that overdose is something that happens in a back alley to somebody shooting up heroin is absolute rubbish. It does happen, but the majority of cases are prescription medication. And in a lot of those cases, it's actually the people it was prescribed for. So again, it's trying to bring forward that health literacy, trying to reduce stigma, trying to get the idea out there. And Kerry ann and I on that day, International Overdose Awareness Day, 2019, we were supposed to talk each for 15 minutes. We ended up doing a 45 minute question and answer session where we would tag each other and say, I think this is your answer, Kerry ann or Curtis, I think you can answer this one. And we've become good friends to this day. Uh, Kerry ann's actually given our staff a list of the jargon for fit packs, whether they're called trackies or black boxes or whatever. She's actually written, written those out for us and, and we continue our friendship to this day. Um, Shannon wasn't sure how many people he would have turning up to Overdose Awareness Day, whether he would get 12 or 20. We had over 100 and we had people crying in the second row and probably further back as well realising that if they'd had naloxone in their hands or in their house, that dad or their brother would still be here. It's such an important message. And it's one that we would have missed had I not pushed my way into it. 
I love the stories of collaboration, working with other health professionals. I love what you've said about the programs because you are living the whole meet people where they are and also that broader concept of just getting outside of the four walls of the pharmacy to truly connect with the community. But I've got a question that's going to bring us back inside the pharmacy, Curtis, and that's because you've recently completed a refit of the pharmacy, which included renaming a consult room after Auntie Rita White. Can you tell us about why that was important? Auntie Rita Wright was born in Brewarrina and at age two, she and her four-year-old sister were stolen. So they were part of the stolen generations. Auntie Rita didn't meet her mum again until she was 18. In that time, Auntie Rita was taken to a mission and I've got my hands up doing the little quote hanger things with my fingers. Um, and on that mission, they were um, basically, they were treated as, as servants and slaves. They were beaten, Auntie Rita was raped. They were underfed, undereducated, very little clothing. And um, I'm more bitter about what happened to Auntie Rita than she is. She has spent years just truth-telling, getting out there and telling the facts of what's actually happened to her. Auntie Rita was featured along with a few other uh, stolen children in a 2016 SBS documentary called Servant or Slave, and it tells the story of um, Auntie Rita. And when the... Um, when the site of the old mission uh, was turned into sports fields, some years later, there was actually a plaque erected to the children who were stolen from various Aboriginal lands and were taken to that mission and who were mistreated. And on that day, Margaret and I turned up and Aunty Rita and a lot of our elders from our local area were incredibly touched that we would actually take time out of our Sunday to turn up and be part of their day. Yet for us, this was just something that was important that was happening to somebody for whom we have a lot of respect. And so we wanted to be a part of that. And so for us, turning up to that day was was an absolute no-brainer. We were there and, and were honoured to be in as a part of that and so when the time came we decided that we would name all of our consult rooms after locals and we have one that's the uncle wes man room and uncle wes is an aboriginal storyteller and you can't just be aboriginal and tell stories there is a whole apprenticeship that goes along with that and uncle wes celebrated his 100th birthday in the last six weeks and he's still around he's just released a book and he's working harder than ever an amazing man and our third room is named after barry robson who is president of the asbestos diseases foundation and the adfa actually work to help people affected by asbestosis and now silicosis to actually get compensation and help as they deal with the horrible effects of asbestosis and silicosis and what it means for their lives. And we did that to celebrate 
our patients, to celebrate our community and the wonderful people. And honestly, if I had a dozen rooms, I could have named them after a dozen of our people that we find inspiring. And that's just what we've we've done. We took that opportunity to um, to celebrate that. I love the idea, the link to the community, but also how it provides a point of celebration, but just as importantly, uh, a point of awareness and, and a point to have conversations around and, and tell stories about these great people in the community. And in each of these rooms is an A2 poster that actually tells the story of these people in their own words. Um, some of them I've put together, but all of them are things that are in their own words, talking about these people, about what they've done. And it just, it gives people a, a real touch point to, to why we've done this. And, and much more than just there's a name on the door that people walk past, maybe don't appreciate, then go and sit in a room. So I think that's a really nice touch. Curtis, for people that are listening to what you're saying, they're inspired, they want to go out into the community outside their pharmacy and do some things like you've done, where can they start? What tools are available to them? What advice do you have? Volunteer to be a part of something. We've pushed and volunteered our way into, as I said, Overdose Awareness Day, Too Deadly for Diabetes, the Health Outreach Day, World No Tobacco Day. I haven't even mentioned our Indigenous Health Quit Smoking programs, a Youth Quit program, a um, uh, Aboriginal Women's Pregnancy Quit program, um, and I recently volunteered on a group which was putting final touches to a website aimed at preventing male suicide. And while I don't feel like I really contributed much to that, what I did do was make some connections with them to point out that pharmacists are one of the most accessible health professionals in the country and the working group that's there realises that connecting with their local pharmacists is a good way to do that. So, um, as I said, Margaret went to, to the Marimwajali men's group. We've had a Cambodian pharmacist who's actually spoken at a local group near her home in Cambodian, trying to improve health literacy, trying to improve access and connection with pharmacists. Obviously, they're not going to come here as our local patients. And that was just something that she'd done but it was something that we heartily encourage and try to, to work with them. So we don't do it because there's money in it in some of these programs. We are paid in some of them we're not, but that's not what determines what we do. And it's really for us, it's about whether there's an opportunity to improve people's understanding of what pharmacists can do, how we can help if there's an opportunity to improve our connection with our communities. And if there's an opportunity to improve people's health literacy, then we will do everything that we can to try to be a part of that. So just say yes. And for us, it's been so good to have these relationships that we've made with people with this wonderful lived experience. The, you know, people who've had very checkered histories that, that I wouldn't have trusted with anything 15 years ago that I will now happily share a podium with and talk as mates about our experiences 
and compare and contrast how easy my life has been as a white man growing up in a country that was set up by white men for the specific benefit of other white men and how other people simply don't get that and how we can try to play a small part in turning that around and helping to make this country a little bit safer, a little bit less racist and a little bit more inclusive of all of us. And we have Muslim pharmacists here who've invited us to join them in their Eid celebrations at the end of Ramadan. We've had people that have invited us along just to be part of this day or that day, just to be part of their community. And for us, that, that's wonderful. And when I'm sitting at Marin Bajali and a lady asks me, where are you from? Who's your mob? Expecting that I'm Aboriginal. And I have to say, I'm not Aboriginal, but thank you so much for thinking that I am. Because if we have a community that's been sidelined and disadvantaged, systematically put upon by our country and they think I'm part of them, then I must be doing something right. And for us, that's it gives me goosebumps every time I think about it, to think that people would actually think that, that I'm part of our Indigenous population. I love your attitude around just saying, yes, it's great advice. Just take the first step. It opens doors for you to connect with the community. So Curtis, it's been an amazing chat, some great examples of how you've actually gone and practically engaged with the community. So Curtis Runo, pharmacist and proprietor at Edmonton Amcal Pharmacy. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experiences and your insights around engaging with your local Indigenous community. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Daniel. It's been great. I really enjoyed that chat with Curtis and hope his experience will further inspire you as to ways you can engage with your local community and achieve positive health outcomes for all Australians in a way that best supports your patients. For more specific information on the diabetes program Curtis discussed with us, visit 2deadly4diabetes.com.au and that too is T-O-O. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 100 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.